the New Testament reading, and to a theologian, 3, 6 through 13, Paul is directing and talking to people directly of the church. Now we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, and we are not idle when we were with you. And we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you. This was not because we do not have the right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when for even when we were with you, we gave you this command. Anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, near busy bodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort and the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. Gospel reading, Luke 21, 5-19. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when one... Days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will this be, and what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, Beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them when you hear of wars and insurrections do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, Nations will rise, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be a great earthquake, and in various places famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, They will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed by even parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. So let's take a breath. Let's get our hearts and minds in a good place, in the right place, in a in a place in which we accept the Spirit. And with the words we have just heard and the thoughts that I wish to share with you today, may the Holy Spirit find in us 
that space, for it to feed and nurture our soul, for it to give us thought to pause and reflect and carry us into the week. So I'm looking up at this screen. Well, I'll look over here. And I'm looking at that title, Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. And maybe I should put a question mark after that phrase. Because what what exactly is here today and gone tomorrow? And it seems a bit ominous. But every time I read the scripture, that saying, that phrase kept popping into my head. I'm pretty sure it was influenced by the apocalyptic style of writing Luke employs here. And the word apocalyptic comes from the word apocalypse, pretty easy transition there, which actually means revelation. And most familiar, that word is most familiar to Christians in the last book of the New Testament. But in fact, apocalyptic writing was popular in Christian circles for thousands of years. And this style of writing is focused on the eschatology. That's a big one. The end times and the beginning of the new world. These verses present a series of revelations. So Luke joins the historical events of the destruction of the temple with what is going on behind and beyond history. In other words, historical events are being set in the larger context of God's purpose. It then becomes a witness to the tenacity of faith and hope. But this discourse is not just for the disciples. Jesus responds to all the people interacting with him in the temple as they were admiring its stones, its beauty, the gifts that had been dedicated to God. Then Jesus delivered horrible news. The temple would soon be completely destroyed. Imagine their surprise hearing this news. Why was something so beautiful that had taken so long to create, so much hard work, about to be destroyed. Though the news must have been shocking to them, Jesus' followers did not ask him how he knew this. They only asked him when the destruction would happen. Think about that. They didn't ask him how he knew it, but when. So from this passage, we learn something about Jesus' followers and about Jesus. This exchange between his followers attests to their wholehearted belief that Jesus was sent by God. Therefore, if Jesus said the temple was going to be destroyed, it was a done deal. They just wanted to know when to expect such an event. And the temple was indeed destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. Now, some people in our time like to use the destruction, I'll think of 9-11 for one example, uh, of the Twin Towers, I think of hurricanes, Katrina, most recently, is it Ian? The, the, you know, And they'll use that to try to paint this picture of our sinfulness as the punishment for such, you know, for our way of life, our sinfulness. 
But in this scripture, I didn't see Jesus doing that. You see, what I learned Jesus was doing was that he knew how to read history. Because remember, this is the third temple. Solomon built the first temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. And when the Jews returned from their captivity in Babylon, they built the second temple, a remarkable work of faith, but to their standards in in Herod's time, a bit inferior. So Herod tore down the temple in 20 B.C. to make room for his temple, the one that the people admired here. Others might have been blind to the approaching disaster, but Jesus saw the avalanche that would inevitably descend. Jesus knew these are things that happen over and over and over again in the history of mankind, in the history of this earth. And as William Barclay wrote, it is only when a person sees things through the eyes of God that they see them clearly. So Jesus moves from discussing a specific catastrophic event to more general statements about the coming of false prophets, wars, and other calamities. And I think it's safe to say these events continue to repeat throughout history and are happening to this day. Excuse me, to this day. Luke uses the destruction of this magnificent temple and Jesus' revelations of wars, insurrections, natural disasters, and plagues, the many catastrophes that humans experience, to make a statement of the impermanence of human achievement. But there is so much more to this message. Because when we look back at all the chaos and destruction, we see that neither Judaism or Christianity were destroyed. The Spirit of God transcends buildings and structures. Both religions continue to grow and evolve over the centuries and in new geographical locations and nations and among people of many ethnicities and races. People can take heart that though Christianity seems to be declining in some denominations, through the Spirit and the power of God, it will continue to grow in new forms and in new places. In this church, in a new pastor. Our task is to ask for discernment about what God wants us to do and then to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit to get it done. Jesus never promised it would be easy, never easy to follow him. And here Jesus is alerting his followers of the hardships ahead. There is no trivial denial of the struggles, the pain and the agony of human life, or the catastrophic forces of nature. These are real. But even in the harsh prophecies of Luke 21, they are filled with the confidence of Jesus' enduring presence. Jesus assures them of the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. 
and the stories in Acts will display the fulfillment of this promise of God's mouth and wisdom. Please look when you get home, have a chance to read Acts chapter 4. The endurance that will gain your souls is also not mere heroic persistence. The early Christians knew all about the endurance of stoic grit, toughing it out, and their endurance was often tested. Paul even picked up the theme in Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, then transformed his endurance from reliance on human strength to trusting in God's love. It's written, We also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Saving endurance is itself a gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Christians who have been admired for their persistence regularly discount their own strength with such words as, it was only by God's grace that I held on. God's grace does many miraculous and mysterious things. But people are here to do the hanging on and to get the work done. In her book, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, she opens with a quote from President Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows the end, in the end the triumph of high achievement? And he who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. So here is when Paul's words to the Thessalonians take on deeper meaning. Paul is not trying to establish social service policies for the city of Thessalonica. Paul is not making a commentary on perhaps what some would call in our society people who milk the system are lazy, using welfare and all our social programs for their own gain. This is not what he's talking about. So I encourage you to go back and read through the book of Thessalonians. It's, it's a small book. What he is trying to establish is do good for others even when you don't have to. It's an ethic for those who seek to follow Christ. He came to town. He did not have to work. He had the right as an apostle and a preacher 
And so he did not have to do anything. But because he could work and contribute to the good of the whole, he did. Work here is not limited to earning a paycheck, but it is focused on fulfilling whatever purpose God has called us to fulfill. If there is something good that we can do, do it. If there is something good that we can give, give it. Even if we don't have to. Even if we have a right not to. The closing sentence of the passage sums up Paul's ethics here. Do not be weary in doing what is right. Rather than advising us to pursue pursue ways to stop ourselves from helping others in need or limiting our help only to those who prove they deserve it, Paul ends by leaning suddenly over to the other end of the giving continuum. He ultimately calls on the Thessalonians and us today to hold some combination of the following as our ethical goal. Don't get tired of doing what is right. Don't get sick of doing what is good. Keep on keeping on in doing good things. Never stop lifting up those around you. Don't ever give up on doing good. Do whatever good you can, whenever you can, wherever you can in whatever means you can, even if you don't have to. Amen.